Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Deb Flaschenberg, and I am your host of Yoga Birth Babies. And today we're going to talk about newborn and childhood vaccinations. So we are going to take a close look at the various vaccinations that are given, the schedule that it's recommended, as well as do you have an alternative schedule? Do you have some choice in spacing things out? Which vaccinations are given right at birth? Where do you have a little space? We're going to talk about what you might want to keep an eye out for with your baby having any sort of reaction after their rounds of vaccinations, as well as should you go into public with your baby if your baby hasn't had vaccinations. These are just a few of the deep dives that we take, and I'm super excited. It's a very comprehensive, deep talk. And to have this conversation, I have Dr. Anna Maria Temple. Let me tell you a little bit about her. Dr. Anna Maria Temple is a holistic pediatrician, best-selling author, mother of three, an award-winning speaker at Harvard Boston, and has had over 100 TV news and podcast appearances. From 2016 to 2017, she lived and worked in New Zealand medical system, where she started putting functional medicine into practice. In her 22-year career, she has treated over 36,000 patients in person and hundreds via online courses. Her passion is to inspire, educate, and empower people to revamp their family health and prevent children from developing chronic disease. Dr. Anna Maria is so well-versed in how she opens up this information so that you can really understand it. She gets a little geeky at times, which I love, but it is such an easily digestible conversation that I think all new parents should listen to because a lot is thrown your way. And what we go into in our conversation is that really decisions should be shared decision-making and that when you speak with your care provider or your pediatrician, it should be a conversation with a conversation of how things best match your values. So it was a really great conversation. She goes over what I didn't know. There's 21 vaccinations that are given in the first, I think I got this correct, in the first round or first few rounds. That's a lot. And she talks about what's in each of them, why what they're covering, why it's important. So I think it's a great conversation all about vaccinations. All right. So before we get to that, I just want to remind you to run to our website and download the free downloadable five simple solutions to the most common pregnancy pains. Now I say pregnancy, but you know that you can apply this to postpartum because what new parent doesn't have some neck or back or hip ache? So please grab that. Just for those times that you can't make it to class, but you still need to address your body. So you can grab that at our website, prenatalyogacenter.com. And then while you're on our website, take a look at the classes we do have. If you can fit into your schedule, I want to give you a little added bonus. So we have a discount code, YBB10, and that's going to give you $10 off our eight class, as well as our monthly unlimited. So you save a little, you get a little more yoga, win-win for everyone. And then I have been doing this podcast for, I think it's been six years. 
maybe more. I don't remember. And I want to make sure I have delivered everything that you want to hear. And maybe I've done a topic, but I haven't gone deep enough, or you want to hear a different perspective, or maybe you have a wonderful guest you think that would be a great conversation go ahead and reach out to me and let me know if there's a topic I haven't covered or guests that you think I should meet. You can always reach me at deb at prenatalyogacenter.com and just share your thoughts because really this podcast is to support the community. And then the last thing I just want to mention before we get into this conversation is our teacher training. It is online and in person. So we're going to go back and forth. That's kind of our new method. We're going to do one in person, one online, one in person, one online. So if you have a passion for supporting the perinatal community and you really want to jump into evidence-based cutting edge information, I've got you covered. Check out our 85-hour Yoga Alliance teacher training at prenatalyogacenter.com. Okay, we're going to take a super quick break and we come back. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Anna Maria. Hi, Dr. Anna Maria. How are you? I'm wonderful. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. This is something I'm really excited to talk about, newborn vaccinations. I feel like a lot of new parents are a bit overwhelmed by kind of the whole birth situation and then newborn life, that this is something that I get asked. And I said, it's not in my scope. So I'm really excited to have you speak to this. So I guess where we should start is, would you mind just sharing a little bit about yourself and how you decide to focus on pediatrics? Yeah, um, I actually am born in Romania and I grew up there under communism and my sister was, uh, she's two years younger than I was and she was super sick, had all these stomach issues. My, I remember my mom sitting on the ground, just rocking her and crying every night. And it was this devastating, heart-wrenching, thing that we were living through. And then they put on all these medicines, but then I ended up taking some of the medicines because I think we were supposed to have parasites or something. I just remember this gross thing that I had to take to make my sister better, you know, and didn't make any sense to me anyway. And then they said that she had celiac disease and then she had to be on a gluten-free diet. And that doesn't sound like a big deal to anyone these days, but let me tell you in 1977 in communist Romania, that was a big deal. Wow. And, um, you know, we went through all those. So, you know, one of the things that I would love to do, I would play with my dolls and I was always their doctor and whatever, you know, just like little kids do. And I remember as young as five doing like, you know, I'm going to be a doctor and I'm never, it wasn't just a doctor. I was going to be a pediatrician. And then recently my husband was like, well, let's just dig deeper into that. Like, why would a five-year-old make, and you know, we're going through the story and he's like, well, you watched your sister suffer for so long. Could it be that you just were like, I would just don't want children to suffer anymore. And I'm like, very much makes so much sense. Anyway, we're just having this play on thing, but yeah, since I was five years old, I wanted to be a pediatrician. And when my family, one of the reasons my family emigrated to the United States was to give me a chance to become a doctor. Oh my goodness. I was not expecting that story. That is amazing. Wow. Yeah. It's crazy because everyone's like, really? I'm like, yeah. And it's never been anything else. It's always been pediatrics my entire childhood. I remember in, in, uh, as a high schooler, I was very alternative. I had like black hair and half my head was shaved and I was, you know, listened to Depeche Mode and Eraser. <laughs> You're speaking, yeah. Right, right, right. Like. <laughs> yeah. So, and my hairdresser who was shaving my head was like, yeah, okay, pediatrician. Anyway, whatever. Anyway, he did my hair for my wedding and I was in medical school. He's like, I cannot believe you're like really in medical school. He's like, I never believe for a second that you're truly serious about becoming a doctor. Well, here you are. I think that's amazing. When you were going through med school and you did all your different um, rounds in different areas, did any of them pique your interest? Yeah. Cardiothoracic surgery. Well, that's interesting. I know. has like really random, but I loved it. I love, I'm a nerd. I love the human body. I think it's fascinating. And to crack a chest open and look at somebody's beating heart and you're able to fix that. And it sounds so weird and more. No, it actually I, sounds fascinating. It was like, I mean, you are in surgery and you have the power to stop a heart and then you have the power to turn the heart back on. And then with your skills, you're able to help this person survive traumatic things. And it was just 
was so fascinating. And I was telling my husband, I'm like, I'm going to be a cardiothoracic surgeon. And blah, blah. and he goes, there's just, there's a couple obstacles. They're very small, very small. But number one, you cry when you don't know the right answer. You can't cry on rounds, especially if you're going to be a surgeon. And he's like, number two, you want to have children and you envision yourself as a mom who is like, you know, take over the world. He's like, it's not really going to happen as a cardiothoracic surgeon. But that was, anyway, so that was short lived and I moved on and I continued on with pediatrics. Oh, well, I think you're in the great field for everything I've read about you. It seems like a perfect fit. All right. So let's start to talk about vaccinations. Mm. I think what there's a lot of conversation about vaccinations. We're going to stick to newborn and childhood vaccinations. Can you explain how they work? Yeah. So vaccines have been around for a long time and they were started, many people know how long they've been around and they started in order to prevent infectious disease. And what it is, you take a small piece of the virus, a small piece of a protein that looks like the virus and you put it in a concoction that has various ingredients in order to prevent fungus growing into the syringe or bacteria growing it and also to make it more effective. The bottom line is we present the body with an antigen, which is a piece of the virus or piece of the bacteria, and we add things that are going to inflame the system. So the body sees the piece of virus, which is not a lot, just a few pieces of the virus, and with the inflammatory response, it starts going, oh my gosh, this is something we should create antibodies for, and that's how you develop an immunity to went after having a vaccine. But the bottom line is the vaccine causes an inflammatory response, which then triggers the body to make antibodies. Okay. So now that everyone's on the same page, let's jump into the different vaccines a newborn gets. Because I, when I was studying to be, a, not studying to be a new parent, when I was a new parent or pregnant, and we met with a few different pediatricians, I was a little surprised by how many vaccinations newborns get. So we can go over the vaccination schedule um, in a little bit, but can you talk about what they are, which ones they get? Right. So at birth, um, you know, I'll start with the hepatitis B. So that's one that is given in the hospitals, hepatitis B. And a lot of parents have a lot of questions. And what I like to do is actually discuss on like, why we're doing hepatitis B, right? Because I understand my philosophy is we, if you understand the why, we can then make proper decisions and choices. So the reason that the hepatitis B vaccine was brought onto the market was because hepatitis B was a big worldwide problem. And more specifically, it was the carrier state. So once you become infected with hepatitis B, you become a chronic carrier of hepatitis B. Being a chronic carrier of hepatitis B is the number one risk factor for liver cancer. Having liver cancer is a number one condition that leads to liver transplant. As you can imagine, this is a big mortality, morbidity, burden on humanity, society, our families, et cetera. And because the numbers were so astronomical, they're like, let's make a hepatitis B vaccine so we can prevent this from happening. And in fact, it's actually one of the first anti-cancer vaccines. And they were, they did in the eighties and they weren't budging. The numbers were not budging. The rates of hepatitis B infection continued on as they were before. And then they're like, okay, well, we're not getting the people, we're not capturing this early enough. That's when they started doing it in the newborn nursery. And once they started giving the vaccine in newborns, the rate of hepatitis B drastically decreased. And when you look at a graph from the CDC, it is like a steep curve down. And then they've remained very low since then. And that was in the 90s. That policy, again, was made in the 90s. Now it's 2022. Also in that time, another reason that they're like, what would you give it to newborns? Like, how would a newborn get hepatitis B? They're not doing drugs. They're not sexually active. How would this happen? Well, in the 1980s, the rates of getting hepatitis B from a blood transfusion were one in three. One in three. So if you were in surgery, if in a car accident, if let's say you came in contact with a blood, you had a one in three chance of getting hepatitis B. That is astronomical numbers. And then because of HIV, now the rates are as latest I saw them as 2016. The were the chance of getting hepatitis B from a blood transfusion is one in 63,000. 
a much better wow. <laughs> odds ratio. But you can see how that was a big issue that if you were a baby and you ended up needing surgery or needing or having trauma, needing blood transfusion, that was one of the ways. And that's how the hepatitis B can be an issue. Anyway, these days we're actually checking mom's hepatitis B levels, antibodies. I still question why don't we check the other caregivers? Because every adult in the household would gladly give up blood to see to make sure they're not hepatitis B carriers to protect the baby, but we don't do that as a nation. Whatever. Well, that definitely and, answers my question to have for later about Hep B, because my own care provider said you don't have to do it right at the hospital. Like she had a window of up to a year, but you're giving reasons that I'm like, oh well, if something happens and that baby in one in three, that I did not, I did not know that, so I'm already learning right. something. So that was then, right? So now the chances are so small of, of a youngster getting a hepatitis B that it is fine to, to wait within the first, to, with a year to give. I usually do the hepatitis B in my vaccines in my clinic at the age of one. Okay, so, um, so she, yeah. all right. So that was the same because my son same is, page. yeah, my son is 10 and we, we just in full disclosure and my listeners know I did home birth. So, um, Yay. we were not in a hospital for that. Right. Um, so then we, yeah, we waited for that one a little bit until about a year. All right, cool. So that helps with that. So there's happy and I will stop interrupting you as you go through the other ones. No, no, not at all. <laughs> the other, the other one is vitamin K. That's a shot that's given at birth. It's not an immunization. It is a, it's a, it's actually a vitamin. Mm -hmm. And the reason that's given at birth is because babies are born with inadequate levels of vitamin K. Vitamin K is needed for blood clotting. Mm -hmm. And when when babies don't have enough clotting ability because they're born with an immature liver, the younger you are born, so in other words, the less full term you are, so with 39, 38, 30, the younger the birth is, the more immature the liver, the more risk you are for uh, having a blood that is not clotting. And this puts the babies at risk for intracranial hemorrhage, which is a bleed in the brain that between the ages of two weeks old and six weeks old. And so they're like, but again, very rare. It's always been rare, but when it happens, it's detrimental, devastating. You can't turn it back. It's done. The baby's neurologically devastated for life. And they're like, these are big things. And they look to see, okay, what if mom ate a very rich diet of vitamin K? Would that transfer through the baby? And it doesn't. And they came up with a vitamin K shot. In European countries, they're doing, they have been doing oral vitamin K, which has been shown to be as effective as the intramuscular dose. There is a black box warning on the vitamin K shot specifically towards the, uh, when you give it IV because there was a rare circumstance where the children died had anaphylaxis from the IV dose. Oh. There, there is controversy on, because a, a study 25 years ago showed that there was increased rates of leukemia in children who got hepatitis, uh, hepatitis, vitamin K, sorry, they got vitamin K shot intramuscularly in the newborn nursery. So in the newborn nursery, they give the vitamin K shot in the muscle, not IV. Okay. And over the next 25 years, several more studies, very large studies, international studies were done, and there was no correlation between the vitamin K shot and cancer leukemia. There's a lot of parents that are very concerned that there may be an association with jaundice, and they get very worried about their child getting any intramuscular medication at birth. And to that, I say, hey, listen, that's okay. There is an oral formulation of vitamin K that is just vitamin K in oil that is as effective as the vitamin K shot. The difference is vitamin K shot at birth is one and done. The drops, you have to do a very specific protocol. In fact, Stanford has a Stanford protocol in place that you have to do it for the first three months of life. And some parents are like, wow, that's intense. I don't want to give something for three months of life. And some people, they'll take the shot. The nice thing is you have choices in how you would like to proceed with a vitamin K at birth. That's I I've heard about and I've known about the the drops for a while, but having attended many births as a doula, I never heard that as an option. I like that you're saying there are choices, but I I had not seen the choices presented unless the birthing parents said we had done our research and we'd like to have this option. 
So it was just interesting. I'm not trying to be confrontational no. sports, but like, wow, no, no, I'm no, no, glad no. to, yes. I'm glad that you are putting out there that those that are listening recognize there are choices and, and you may have to advocate. You have, you have, yeah. So you have to, so, but it's a great point you have because the doctors are not going to tell you about vitamin K because in the United States, the shot is what is recommended. So in a court of law, if a child has an adverse outcome with an intracranial hemorrhage and you go in front of the court as a doctor and you said, I recommended the drops, you're going to get crucified. Mm. And the doctors do want, do not want to take that chance. So they're not going to recommend vitamin K drops, even though you can look at Netherlands, New Zealand, Denmark, the UK, the UK just changed to intramuscular shots as well. But for a long time, they did the drops as well. So this has been internationally done, but in the United States, it has not been advocated. It's not going to be recommended by your physician because there's major litigation associated with it. No, this is really great information. All right. I'm going to let you keep going. I'll try not to keep interrupting. No, you're not. No, no. (laughs) So what other, so now that's like straight up newborn. So what about more, when do baby shots, I don't even remember, when are the now kind of infant getting their, their shots and what are those? Right. So in the, the CDC standard guideline, and you know, the benefit, so I'm an integrative pediatrician. So I've done traditional medicine for, you know, 15 years and now I've been doing functional slash integrative slash holistic medicine for the rest of the time. And so I've gone to see the benefits of both worlds. So in the traditional model, in the CDC model, you're at the age of two months. Well, you get your second, well, you get your hepatitis B at birth. You get hepatitis B number two at one month old. And then at two months of age begins a series of uh, several vaccines. And that's going to be your polio, your DTaP, your Hib, Prevnar, rotavirus. That's five. Can you break that down? <laughs> yeah. So the rotavirus is the, it's an oral uh, vaccine that is to prevent rotavirus infection, which is a gastrointestinal, which is a vomiting and diarrhea issue. In the United States, the children don't die from this because we have access to IV fluids and hydration and hospitalizations and such. In in countries, in third world countries, children die from this because they dehydrate. I will tell you that when, because um, a lot of the next question, a lot of people say, what is necessary? So the purpose of the, this vaccine, so the vaccine was rolled out actually when I was a hospitalist, which means a doctor who only works in a hospital setting. And at that time, before the vaccine came out, in the spring, that's when rotavirus spreads to the community, we would have the hospital was full of rotavirus infections, vomiting and diarrhea and dehydration. Every room was full. We're talking like 100 rooms full of kids that were vomiting and dehydration. They rolled out the rotavirus vaccine. And the next season, we had two kids Mm. the entire season with rotavirus in the hospital. So it did make a huge difference. There were side effects with the initial rollout with intussusception, which means there is um, the intestines that get stuck onto each other and could be a surgical issue. And then that got pulled off the market and a new vaccine came out. That vaccine is a two, four, and six months old. If you don't get it by the age of six months old, you have outgrown it because the kids that are in most danger of dehydration and issues are under six months of age. Mm. A lot of parents feel like, what if I delay my vaccines, you know, like 21 vaccines, I'll have to get them all caught up later on. The fact that is actually not true. You outgrow the doses as you move on with life. And another question a lot of people say, how come there's so many vaccines when they're younger? Why don't we give it to them when they're older? The reasons vaccines are happening, a lot of them right in the first year of life, because that's who dies from the vaccine preventable issues. Um, you know, that's who dies from Haemophilus influenza B, which is a meningitis. And when you get this kind of meningitis, there's a very high risk of losing your hearing on top of other neurological issues. So Haemophilus influenza B, there's three doses in the first year of life. Then we have uh, Prevnar. Prevnar is also against meningitis, ear infections, pneumonia. And before Prevnar came to town, when I was hospitalist, I had many instances where I would pull pus out of the backs of four-month-olds and six-month-olds who came in with high fevers and were super sick because they had pneumococcal meningitis, which can be neurologically devastating. Vaccine came to town, have not seen pneumococcal meningitis since then. And we're talking like 15 years, which is an incredible amount of time. Um, and then we have polio. 
a thing that a lot of people talk about is that, well, you know, I hear that when you get the polio vaccine, you get polio. So I don't want my kids to get the polio vaccine. That was actually true when we were giving the oral polio vaccine. The oral polio vaccine was very effective in keep preventing getting polio. What happened was we got to a point in the world where we didn't have, we had more cases of polio from the oral polio vaccine because it's a live vaccine than from natural polio coming from the world. I remember so like, getting that one. Right? Like, I'm a child one. of the seventies. I remember that one. It was like a little yeah. jelly thing in a little yeah. plastic cup. Like this had made an impression on me. That's funny yeah. you're talking about that. Okay. Yeah. And so that, but that's what we used to have. And we no longer have that. Now you have an inactivated polio, which is a dead virus. So you cannot get the polio from this vaccine. Okay. And okay. wow, there's a lot. So, a lot. okay, that was the polio. Okay. And, and did you go over the, the DTAP? D- DTAP, yeah. right. So DTAP is um, a vaccine against pertussis and tetanus. Pertussis is a big issue in babies, especially in newborns. Um, when the babies get pertussis, newborns, they don't cough. They just stop breathing and die, which is really awful. A problem. A problem because there's no sign. There's not like, oh, okay, they're coughing, coughing, coughing. I mean, obviously some do, but generally speaking in the newborns, it's just a silent death. And, um, it is, that is been still in the community. And the reason that is, is because the DTAM vaccine is not great. And what I mean by that, it doesn't give you immunity for a long time. So you have to have five shots over your childhood. And that's why you end up having, you know, in these vaccines, why there's so many shots and like, because you, your immunity doesn't last the antibodies, the body sees the vaccine makes antibodies. And then it just kind of wanes over time it means it goes away. And then in a few months, you need another shot in order to t- remind the body like, hi, hi, still here. Let's make some more antibodies. And the body's like, Oh, let me make some antibodies. And then over time it decreases. And again, this happens over and over again. That's why we need several shots. In the 70s, there was a DTAP vaccine and it was it was whole cell pertussis. Everyone stay with me. It's about to get nerdy for just a second. <laughs> whole cell means that the entire cell of the pertussis bacteria was in the vaccine to, to um, elicit inflammation and cause the body to make antibodies. And it was a great vaccine as far as antibodies because the people got needed only two shots and they had immunity for life and they were good to go. Problem was the side effect was epilepsy. Oh, so bad. So we got pulled off the market because uh, we can't have that. And then they made the current DTAP, which is only a piece of the pertussis, back, uh, the piece of the pertussis bacteria to mount the immune response with the tetanus and the diphtheria. But it is not as good as the other one in mounting the immune response. That's why now it's five shots and it used to be only two shots. And again, because a lot, there's a lot of controversy. People are like, there, no one is paying attention to side effects of vaccine. They are. They need to pay more attention. I agree with everybody on this. What, what I'm saying, there is a body that is watching for side effects and things do get pulled off the market when we're seeing things like is in this example. So in the first year of life, there are a lot of vaccines that are coming down the pike. One of the things that I tell parents, I'm like, you know, when you advocate for your child, it is fine. It is fine to space them out. In fact, in my practice, we space them out. And that is something I do want to talk about because I did that with my pediatrician as well. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the typical vaccination schedule. And then I would love to hear your thoughts on how to space them out. We'll be right back. Okay, we are right back. I have to say, I felt so good to hear you say that you recommend spacing them out. I'm like, oh, because as I'm listening, I'm like, did I do the wrong things? Because yeah, I spaced them out because it just felt like a lot, which meant we then saw the pediatrician a lot because we're there filling in the gaps on that schedule. So if you can talk about the typical vaccination schedule and then what you recommend for your clients. 
So my children, my children were vaccinated on the schedule. And as a traditional doctor, I had everybody on a schedule. And in fact, I frowned against people uh, opening up the schedule. And it wasn't because it wasn't effective. It was just a medication error. Um, People wouldn't come in and get their vaccines. Um, You know, a lot of exposure back into the pediatric clinic. Again, I was in a pediatrics office where we I was seeing 28 patients a day. And there were three of my partners running rooms at the same time. That's a lot of kids coming through a practice. And didn't really want babies in there with flu and RSV and all this stuff and be exposed to everything. Well, since that time, you know, since I'm doing all my my holistic pediatrics and doing it differently this time, one of the things that I've looked at, I was like, you know what? That's a lot of stuff coming into a youngster. And the body needs some time to process, to make the antibodies, to detox itself from whatever it doesn't need. Again, in a vaccine, I don't make vaccines, so I do not pretend to know how you make a vaccine. But there are ingredients like aluminum and formaldehyde that are in vaccines that can be concerning and should they be in a baby's body. However, I don't I don't have a vaccine that doesn't have those. So I'm trying to weigh the goods and the bad and trying to keep the kids away from dying from vaccine preventable issues and having effect, side effects from the vaccine. And what I have found over my past, you know, five years of doing vaccines differently is that when we space them out, the kids have less fever, less rashes, less side effects than when we give them together. I used to be the doctor who would go, you know, the, let's have all the vaccines, five different, they're antigens. You don't get five vaccines, but they're five antigens. You usually get a combo vaccine at their two-month visit, and then they would have a fever of 104, and I'll be like, no, 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 it's normal to have fever. I'm like, well, okay, you know what? It's not normal to have a fever of 104 after vaccines. That is way too intense of an immune response to a vaccine. And since we've spaced them out, I got to say, like, the highest fever we've had in the clinic has been maybe 101, maybe. 100.4 100.4 for sure, but maybe 101, and that would be like a one, one-off one kind of case, which speaks to a huge difference when I had a lot of kids with lots of vaccine fevers, and then they were taking Tylenol, which then decreases the effectiveness of the vaccine, which then decreases your glutathione, which then decreases your detox capability. And it just sets off a cycle of events that's just not necessary. And in these days, I'm like, you know, what I do is I actually, um, I do use a combo vaccine. And and it's called Pentacel. I have no sponsorship to the thing, you know. <laughs> Let me tell you something. I have tried to talk to insurance companies like we chart to charge just what it costs for the vaccine. And anyway, there's a, that's a whole other story behind insurance companies. But anyway, what I'm saying is I'm not sponsored by these vaccines. This is not you do as you do. But what I'm telling you is that the, the reason that I chose Pentacel, which most offices don't have because it's more expensive than its competitor. The I chose it because it has the least amount of aluminum, least amount of formaldehyde, least amount of ingredients when compared to giving three individual shots because the Pentacel is Haemophilus influenza B, polio, and DTaP. When you look at the ingredients in that combo vaccine versus doing DTaP, Hib, and polio individually, you get less ingredients when you do this combination vaccine. Can a parent, now that they're hearing this, can a yeah. parent request that? If the clinic doesn't have it, they, they could request. Yes, you can request it. Most clinics don't have it because the competitor, because they came to my clinic too, and he, the competitor, which has much more aluminum, many more chemicals, you do not want the competitor. That's Pediorix. Um, they are the they decrease their price for their other vaccines if you get Pediorix. So it's a money thing from the vaccine companies. And because a lot of um, doctors don't see that much of a difference, they're like, it's fine. They are go- they're going to go for cost. So, okay, the traditional, I just want parents listening to understand what to expect for the traditional or the AAP, or maybe it's also CDC recommendations. It's like two, again, I didn't do this, so I don't remember. Is it two, yeah. four, six months? And then, yeah. okay. And then yeah. what you're offering, because I know what I did do is we we're there every month because we yep. spaced it out. So is that what, if a parent wants to space it out, they should have a conversation with their pediatrician ahead of time and see if yes. that's even an option? Okay. Yes. Yep. And then you, because, yeah, so you do, so it's birth, one month, two, four, six, and then nine months you get your third hepatitis B vaccine. Okay. And so then if they spaced it out, it would just be birth, one month, and then just keep going until you've gone through them all? 
I would even say you don't, don't do the hepatitis B until one year old. So start your vaccines at two months old. And then, you know, in my practice, I do the Penticel, which gets three vaccines, the three covers, because I want pertussis in on board as soon as I can to protect the babies. Then I do Prevnar plus Rota if you're in daycare. Then I rotate back to Penticel, then Prevnar plus Rota. Again, Rota if you're in daycare. So I do the, the Penticel and Prevnar three times rotated. Okay. I like, this is great. That way, again, people are hearing it. This really comes back to options. And that's yes. kind of my big, that's my big platform is I'm never here to tell anyone. And I have my guests no. are never here to tell anyone. But what's important is that people realize there are op- options and conversations to be had and that they need to think about what's best for their family and their values. So I love that you are exposing people to ideas of of, of just variations that they may not know are available. So I'm sorry, were you going to say something? No, I, I think that is so important because I think one of the biggest, big obstacles that a lot of parents are facing, they're not being heard. They feel they're getting bullied. They feel that they're being forced and then they just shut off to the whole thing completely instead of like, no, let's explore this a little bit. Okay. I could do it a little different. Oh, I understand why I'm doing this. Oh, I see the purpose of this. Oh, I see why you're doing less ingredients. And then all of a sudden I could, now we're all on the same page rather than like, you know, the heck with it all. I'm not doing anything because now I don't believe or trust anything anybody's saying. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I'm loving everything you're saying. So let's talk about their baby has, let's say maybe they're two months or maybe I don't know, somewhere in that past newborn stage. What should a parent expect after their baby has a round of vaccinations? A fever, a little fussy? What might they have an eye out for? And I guess also what are the signs that things are beyond just the norm? Um, fever again, fever is expected. The, when you do follow the CDC uh, guidelines, I do find that the kids have had more fevers, more fussiness, more irritability. Some sleep more, some sleep less, some eat more, some eat less. Um, in when I've spaced them out in the, the, the plan that I just shared with you, I've really, we've had like almost nothing. And the parents that come see me are terrified of vaccines. So I know that if they saw a speck of anything, they would call me in a second. So I know that they're not just blowing it off. But when we're spacing it out, I'm like, really, like, uh, as I said, 100.4 fever, maybe in one or two kids, maybe a one-on-one sometimes. Um, but it's not, those are, nothing interesting has happened when I spaced them out. When I did the CDC I, guidelines, I did see a lot more fussiness, irritability, and rashes. Mm, and irritability that could last, the fever can last up to 72 hours. Irritability can last 72 hours. Um, and that's, I think that's simple. That's too much to me. That's telling me that, that the system has been overloaded. So what are some signs and symptoms that a baby may have an allergic reaction to a vaccination? I think you said rashes. Is that normal? That's just, that, that falls with the normal. I see, you know, I get a little, this way I get a little squirrely on what's normal because I've had kids that will get a rash and one of them, so I've had kids with a Prevnar vaccine that actually set off eczema. And, um, and what do I mean by that? It wasn't like a little redness. Like the child all of a sudden had like all these weird spots that just didn't go away. It didn't necessarily bother them. This happened several times. And I have an online eczema course and a lot of moms have noticed the same thing. Like, oh my gosh, like I got prep, like what's going on? So some kids are really susceptible to that. If you see that, we're going to pause and we're going to take a moment and see what the child is doing. Is the body is super inflamed? Is the body telling us that mm, too many things happening at the same time? We need to pause. We do not want to just push through things because it's normal and expected because sometimes it's not normal. Sometimes the body is trying to tell us like red flag, something is amiss. So a rash that is like local reaction near the immunization site, that's normal. That doesn't, you know, it's going to be a little red hot lava can happen. That's localized. I'm not super worried. Full body rash, I'm worried. In some kids that I've given, the nice thing is one, because I space them out, I know which vaccine is causing the problem. DTAP, I've had several kids that have had um, a weird neurological thing that showed up and might, it's like, sometimes it's a shoulder shrug that happens over and over again. Sometimes it's a weird head movement that happens within a week of the DTAP and then lasts for a month. And then it goes away completely. That's not normal. That's not normal. And again, because I'm paying attention, we 
pause everything. We wait and we see what happens. And then we just take our time doing the rest of the immunizations. We're not going to go, Oh, don't know what that was. I'm like, mm, the body tried to tell us something. What is that? Um, that's, so th- that's if you're just ha- helpful. That's really helpful for parents to be like, okay, I need to really watch. I need to really watch and pay attention of what's hey, happening. Exactly. And here's the thing, my parents, one of the things that a lot of vaccine conscious people know, they know about VAERS. VAERS is the vaccine reporting system that you go in and you have adverse. So a lot of parents expect their pediatrician to make a VAERS report. When they go in, they're like, oh my gosh, my child had a rash from head to toe, hasn't gone away in three months. I need you to make a VAERS report. And the pediatrician says, it's nothing to do with it. You, the parent, can go onto the VAERS website, V-A-E-R-S, and make a report yourself. You need the name of the vaccine. You need the lot number, which is on your immunization record that your doctor's giving you. And you can go in and you can put in, make your own report the, you hear a lot of people say, oh, on VAERS, there was a big association between this vaccine and passing out. That doesn't mean that that's a study. That's just the reports. Mm-hmm. And what the FDA and the CDC do, they're like, oh my gosh, the reports are coming in continuously. An example, when parents and doctors were putting in reports that kids were having febrile seizures after having Prevnar and flu shot at the same time at the age of one, a lot of reports on VAERS. They actually took that data, they ran clinical studies, and they did see that there was an increase in risk of febrile seizures when those two vaccines were given together at the age of one, but not at the age of 18 months. So then they made a huge report. They're like, please do not give those two vaccines together because it increases the risk of febrile seizures. So it is very helpful for you as the parent to put in, make a report whenever you see something is going amiss and you're just like, I don't know, is it something? Because the next parent can go, I don't know, is it something? And you're all noticing that there's a shoulder shrug going on from the DTAP vaccine. And when you look, when they look at the reports, they're all coming from a lot number, which then they can go mm-hmm. and investigate with a company. What is going on with this lot number? Why are all these people putting in these reports? Wow. I had no idea symptom? about this. This is fascinating. And you know what? A lot of people don't. So when you look at, you know, I watch all the pro-vax, anti-vax, all the movies. And one of the things that is always thrown around is like, oh, no one is making, the doctors don't make reports. You're right. A lot of doctors don't make reports. It takes 45 minutes to to make that report. And if the doctor's not feeling that it's a crucial thing, they're not going to. But you, the parent, can do it. You can do it. You notice something is amiss. Please do it. Please write it. That helps us gather information from the general population. You do not need to have your doctor write it. You can do it. That is so important and empowering and it's kind of paying it forward that it's going to help in the the bigger scheme, help our community. Oh, I love that. And thank you. I'd never heard of that. And I'm just so excited to learn something new that I can then just kind of dip into conversations with my, with my parents I work with. So let's talk a little bit about taking babies out in public before their first vaccination. What's your advice on that? Oh, you know, I was, oh my gosh, I'm so squirrely. I get really squirrely <laughs> in the first, in the first three, two, three months, um, of, of age because I, I worry about them being in gatherings. And by taking out, what we're saying is don't go to a family reunion, which by the way, my, my two children born July 3rd and one July 7th. And the family reunion is like mid July. And my in-laws were like obsessed with me going to the family reunion. So I was that person that I tell everyone not to be. And I took my kids to the family reunion and I kept them in a car seat and I kept them covered the whole time. So to this day, my kids are 20 years old. To this day, they're like, remember that time that you came to the family reunion and you wouldn't let any of us hear the babies. Um, I was like, okay, it's 20 years later. We got to let it go. Got to let it go. <laughs> Um, but I, it's, it's not just that I don't want them to get RSV. I don't want them to get pertussis. I don't want them to get a flu. It's just, they're such delicate creatures, but I want you to go outside. I want you to go for a walk. I want you to be, you know, in the world. If you need to go somewhere, cause sometimes you have to get food. Cause I mean, I do love Instacart, but not everybody can do Instacart. So just have the baby have them covered. So the point being that you don't want other people in your child's face. It doesn't mean that if they're in the grocery store, now they're 
being attacked by viruses, but everyone loves a newborn. They want to come say hi and they want to come love on the baby. And it's just like, just cover them, keep them covered with a nice breezy cover. So no one can see the baby. So I love that. So if they are in a stroller and you can maybe put one of those little muslin blankets over or wear your baby facing in, and then they can't see the baby's face. Yes. Yes. The problem is when they come in their face, it's not like just randomly like the advice we're getting these days, like you walk outside and you get a viral illness. That does not happen. <laughs> that does that not happen. is helpful. Cause I'm so glad you're saying this because I've had some students say like, we have a lot of stuff online still. And I've had some students be like, I haven't taken the baby out. I haven't left the house in like a month. I'm like, you need to leave the house. So this is really important. So thank you for sharing that. All right. So I don't want to go too deep into the anti-vax movement, but I do want to just touch on that. I know some people are still a little anti-vax when they think for for the autism idea. So can you just go a little bit, not too deep into it, of some of the outdated and retracted studies behind vaccinations and it's tied to autism? Because I know that it is still lingering. Oh, it is absolutely lingering. It's actually the study you're referring to is from... Um, Dr. Andrew Wakefield, who was a British uh, gastroenterologist surgeon in 1996. I was in residency when the study came out, and the study showed that in 13 children that there was a correlation between autism and the MMR protein from the vaccine in their intestines. And that study was blasted everywhere. People were, you know, completely scared uh, for obvious reasons, again, in the medical field, we're like, it's 13 kids. This study has to be replicated. It has to be big numbers. It has to be multi-center, blah, 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 all this stuff. And from that little, from that small study, it went viral. People, the movement happened and a lot of people, you know, backed off. And then 12 years later, no, more 15 years later, they, the, the what they found was that the, Andrew Wakefield was paid by the prosecution and money was exchanged hands in order for Merck to pay over. I am not pro Merck or pro Pfizer, but this is what happened. They got paid. Um, so they could, so they could win the case. They falsified data. So they falsified the developmental questionnaires of the children. And, you know, I just, I'm all about, listen, controversial data, no problem. But when you're starting to falsify information, that is just, I, I don't have, I don't have any, any respect for that, that you're done. You're done. You should not be allowed to continue on with, with whatever you're saying these days. But, and when they retracted that, because the study, the initial study was in the British medical journal and new England uh, journal medicine. When they retracted that, the announcement was in the Wall Street Journal, page 16, in a tiny corner. I remember the day seeing it. I was like, really? That is where we're putting the retraction after all that's happened. Okay, but there's a there's that study. But what is going on in the world? Because I can pull data one way, the other way, the extra way. The rates of autism are indeed going up higher. We do have children's immunizations going. We have our world being fertilized with glyphosate and, you know, heavy metals in our soil and we're spraying bleach everywhere. I mean, I could go on. But what I'm trying to say is this. In my medical career, I've treated over 38,000 kids. And in my practice, I have never had a child be a normal child doing, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm just saying my experience, normal child, I give them the vaccines and they have a regression into autism. I do have children that were always had questionable developmental issues that were diagnosed with autism, but the, the signs were there all along. They were not normal children per se. They always had some delays. Now I have had children in my current practice. They had autism We've resolved, we were not fully resolved, but we were like 75% resolved with autism. And then I did give them one vaccine. It wasn't the MMR, one vaccine. And they had a major regression backwards, clearly visible, absolutely no doubt. The child is back on track. We had to do all this work, but we can see, you can see the effects of how that inflammation was a neurological inflammation and adversely affected the child. 
In the clinic that I have now, I see patients. I have one-hour visits with each patient. We space out vaccines. I only have 200 patients in my clinic. I know each person individually, and I do some vaccines, no vaccines, kind of vaccines, you name it, we do it. And I've not had anyone, I've not seen it in my population, any they've had, besides the one youngster that I'm talking about, regress into autism um, from giving the vaccines. All, I have had children who come to me after having their four-year-old shots specifically because you get four at the same time and they've had tick disorders within 48 hours. They've had neurological issues within 48 hours. They've had behavior, neurological inflammation, screaming pandas, all these kind of things. So direct correlation from vaccines, but I wasn't, so I can't tell you about what it was before. I can tell you what was reported to me. And now that I am treating this, um, different kind of folks in different families, more and more reports are coming through. But I'm saying as I was going through my career, I have not, and I've paid attention. I've always been open. Okay. Let me take that back. I have been open-minded to my mama's not necessarily open-minded to vaccine side effects, but I'm like, but I listened to my mamas. I'm like, what are they noticing? What are they seeing? And I've not had the, I've given one dose of MMR because that's the vaccine that is in question. And then the child regressed. Now the kids, again, when you're on the CDC schedule, you get a lot at the same time. And it becomes very difficult to say, is it the MMR by itself? Or is it the MMR given with chickenpox, DTaP and polio at the same time? while the child has a fever three months or two months after having the flu shot, or they got the flu shot at the same time, these things happen and the kids become really inflamed. And the, the what I'm saying is the story is really complicated. Is it the one specific shot? Is it the combination of shots? Is it a combination of shots and a sick child? What is it? All right. So the bottom line is it is not simple and that yeah. there may have been some underlying um, I don't know what the right word is, uh, habits inflammation. or inflammation and yeah. some things might've been, or been percolating. And then this might have exposed more of that inflammation and behavior. Is that a way yes. to interpret yeah. that? Yeah. And so, you know, for example, I have a youngster who, uh, had a very bizarre reaction to the detail before she came to see me. We space, 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 we delay vaccines, and then she had the MMR vaccine. Again, all by itself, months away from the other vaccines. And then she developed this weird vomiting belly issue, which was very similar to the DTAP reaction she had way back when, a year prior when she was a little baby. Well, then when, again, when you're open-minded, you're like, aha, uh-huh. but it's not necessarily was the MMR. This child's body and reactions from the vaccines are not they don't go well together. This, you know, so we had to pay attention. We had to do a lot of gut healing. We had, we resolved the vomit, resolved the belly. But again, paying attention, you're like, wait a minute. This is the second time she's had an issue with a vaccine. Very similar reactions. This is not a good mix. If you go, well, sometimes kids just have a stomach bug or sometimes kids just vomit or sometimes, and you blow it off, you're not noted, you're not paying attention to the details because in a lot of kids that end up getting, let's say the MMR and get autism, my question is, what did they do from the other vaccines? Did they have 104 fevers every time they got a vaccine? Did they vomit? Did they have unusual fussiness that got blew, got blown off? Like it just makes me think, what did the body give any other clues? What was the child's diet? You know, what was the child's temperament? What about their sleep? Are they pooping? There's so many complex factors, factors. but, but when you do one at a time and you pay attention, it decreases the risk of missing something. So for, so the, okay, let me try to get my thoughts together. So we have the newborn one month, two month, four, six, nine month. And then what, and then when do the, how does it continue after that? Cause I'm wondering at what point, at what point if a child may have some inflammation or parents are liking the idea of spacing it out, when did, can they continue this through all of childhood? When do vaccinations stop? So the <laughs> good news is that after the age of one, you actually outgrow several vaccines. Okay. And so at the age of one, let's say you've done that. So at the age of one, you get your last dose of Prevnar, last dose of Hib. 
That's when the question about hepatitis A comes in. So a lot of practices will do Prevnar, Hib, Hep A, and a lot of time chicken pox. Okay. And word of caution, the studies out there show that giving chicken pox and MMR in less than 15 months old does not have the same effect, beneficial effect, as if you waited till 15 to 18 months old. And everybody, you know, again, we're very, I have my people that are super scared about everything and they want to get their vaccines early. I'm like, well, let's do vaccines when the body is most acceptable to make more, most, most accepting of the vaccine to make the best number of antibodies. Like why do a vaccine when it's not going to be that effective? So that is, and again, a lot, the data is out there and it's been out there for 15 years. And I have been discounted in my previous traditional practice because they're like, Oh, but some one kid had chicken pox and therefore the mom was mad. Now everyone will get chicken pox at the age of one years old. I'm like, are you kidding? Like we're making a, a policy based on one mom that was upset about the chicken pox based when you look at the literature that doesn't correlate anyway. So I get a little annoyed because we're not actually following fully what we should be doing. So the, if you can get, if you do them one month apart, the whole point without boring everyone to death, you can get your vaccines done by the age of two. If you space them out one month apart. Okay. Now that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Wow. <laughs> I'm really, I'm really following you and enjoying this. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, what is one tip or final piece of advice you would like to offer new and expectant parents? And it can be about anything. You're a pediatrician, you're a parent. It can be about anything. Okay. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. Okay. So what would you like to share? Gosh, there's so many things. Okay. First of all, go on dates. Okay. That's it. (laughs) You got to go on dates before the baby comes. Trust me, please, please, please go on dates. Um, all right. But the one thing is, as you become a parent, it is so the world is confusing. There's way too much information out there. It's called infobesity, if you will. And you can spend hours on Google just trying to search, should I do hepatitis B? What are the side effects? Is there autism? No autism. You know, I mean, you can go just lose your mind. This is what you need to do. Instead of researching vaccines, research a doctor that you can have a conversation with. Go meet many doctors and sit down and go, I know nothing about vaccines. You didn't go to medical school. It is okay not to know anything about vaccines. Like we all feel like now we should know everything. Like when you walk in, I'm like, I know everything. Just walk in and just listen and hear what the, what the doctor has to say and see if it resonates with you. I promise you the moment that you have a belly, belly, a baby growing in your belly, you develop this mom intuition, which you're going to deny yourself over and over and over again. And then one day you're like, man, I was right. (laughs) Um, so just listen to what they have to say. And if you can have an open conversation, I'm worried about this. I'm concerned about that. Do I want to get vaccinated? I don't know. Should I get, why am I getting vaccinated? If you can have an open conversation and you walk away feeling comfortable, getting in a warm, fuzzy feeling, that's the place you go. And you let that doctor guide you along. Of course, ask questions. Of course, look into some stuff, but having a guide, having, so the the name, the doctor in Latin means teacher. We should be the coach and we go, okay, this is a great website for you to look at. This is what I've seen in my practice. This is how we're going to go about this. And then if you're comfortable with that, that's what you're going to do rather than 7,000 hours on Google, which I promise you, your head's going to swim and you're going to be angry and you're going to be upset and you're going to feel like a terrible parent. Spend that time researching the right provider for you that's going to help guide you and your choices in accordance with what you believe, what your family believes, and what how you hope to raise your baby. I totally agree. The pediatrician I had for the first five years of my son's life, because then we moved, was amazing, and I still miss her. (laughs) (laughs) She was the best. It's, I mean, you know, you sit there, and I was like, when I go to my hairdresser, I'm not researching the hair color that she's going to put on my hair. I know she knows I'm holistic minded. She knows I like less chemicals. My girl is doing so much research. So when I go and she says, this is what we're using, I'm like, let's do it. When I go to my doctor, I selected the doctor and I'm not going behind them and researching what they're going to put me for my thyroid. I try, you know what I'm saying? Like 
there is such a comfort in having somebody that can guide you because you have a thousand other decisions to make. What stroller? What baby? Do I breastfeed? Do I formula feed? Right? Do I have a doula? Do I have a midwife? Do I mean, yeah. It's like, and I think cow. this is important also for those who are listening that are pregnant, having the right care provider, then you know who you chose, you know, you can trust and then you can work as a team. I think there's something so important about having a conversation and making decisions and informed consent and yeah, team decision-making. So I'm, I'm very much on board with what you're saying. Where can people find your work? Oh my gosh. I would love to help any, like my, my passion is to help inspire, empower, and educate families to raise healthy kids without medication and to make life a little less anxious and wellness a lot easier. And, you know, so I have an Instagram account at D-R-A-N-A Maria Temple, where I do tons of free education on all things from what peanut butter you should choose to what baby bottles to how do you have kids sitting at the table. Um, I have a YouTube video, Dr. Anna Maria Temple, and my latest best-selling book is Healthy Kids in Non-Healthy World, where I give you a quick simple takeaways at the end of every chapter so you know what to do without losing your mind in the information overload out there. Oh, I can't wait to look. And I'm going to go see what peanut butter you recommend. We use Trader Joe's. No, there's oh. nothing added. No sugar. No sugar added. And nice. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Post coming out tonight. <laughs> I will go look for that. Well, this has been such a joy. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening.